0: Alright, hello and welcome to another episode of Living in the Light Podcast. I am Sawyer and this is Riley. That's wrong side. This is Riley. (laughs) Today we'll be doing some more um, common questions on Christianity. Some common objections on Christianity and just things like that. We'll just be answering them. We have 12 of them. And we're just going to be talking about those. So, Riley, you want to kick
1: us off? Uh, Yeah, before we start uh, these questions, I just got off of a Reddit post I saw. So uh, I just, we did part of them. Just summed them up a bit. So, uh, yeah. first question is: Why did God wait 9.3 billion years to create life, and another 3.7 whatever billion years to evolve humans? Uh, for just to start off with that, <laughs> because you you use the word evolve, which that implies evolution. Never. We don't believe in evolution. That is it's not a thing that Christianity. Nope. That's not a biblical belief oh uh, no it's definitely not and then with the waiting god created everything in seven days so yeah
0: that's god did not wait 9.3 billion years to create human life he waited five days
1: yeah he, it was the fifth day
0: yeah uh Sixth. six okay what else did I have here yeah yeah basically that's all i had yeah i was just saying <laughs> yeah, that like, god I, did not wait all that time yeah
1: i like read the question and i'm like did you read the bible to yeah, ask that question I mean, it's in the first chapter. the simple
0: answer. Yeah, the simple answer is just read the first chapter of Genesis. It gives a literal historical a yeah, factual testimony of it was happened.
1: created in Genesis and 1.
0: Fixes the problem. I will say, though, that I also wanted to point out that the earth is not that old. It's not billions and billions of years old. If you look at the Bible, you mm-hmm. can find dates. And there is not, like, like you can find an exact date from what we have. There is parameters that it could be, yeah. like, within a couple thousand years of parameters i think it was like oldest.
1: older than like ten thousand years old i
0: think that was about when you looked when i looked at it i think that was about the oldest it could possibly be yeah
1: i don't think with it's old
0: and um i, I think could, if i remember correctly oh go ahead
1: I, I could see it being older but then again it's just a thing we'll probably never know so
0: I will say that um, I think we went over a little bit of it in our episode, science versus Christianity. I did talk, we did talk a little bit about the age of the earth. And so if you want like some, a small portion of the evidence supporting a young earth, um, you would find that there in that episode. And that's all I had for that question which just basically God did not wait billions <clears throat> and billions of years to create humans and all yeah. that.
1: You want to lead us off for the next question?
0: All right. So this says, um, why does God allow suffering? If God doesn't stop evil because of free will, would that make it wrong for me to stop someone from killing someone else because I'm hindering their free will? What's the difference from God and I do it? So um, this is generally called the problem of evil. It is unsurprisingly one of the most common objections for Christianity you will come across. Um, What's interesting about it is they generally use this to say that God doesn't exist because evil exists. But what I found interesting was that it actually does the contrary. It actually proves God's existence. Um, it's, It's simple. If there's a no God... That, and everything exists as a result of mere chance, then there would be no basis with which to judge whether or not something is evil. If there is no God, then there would be no basis by which to judge bad and good. Hence, in trying to disprove God, those that employ this argument actually end up proving God's existence because they assume an absolute standard of morality which can only exist if there is a God.
1: Yeah.
0: And as far as the objection goes, I just want to say that now that we've seen it, actually proves God doesn't disprove him, um, the second part of this objection actually answers the first part. Um, cause he says, you know, if evil exists, then God can't exist. But then he says, if evil exists because of free will, da, 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 da. and, um, as far as I've seen, that is the best answer that that I've ever seen. Um, you see, in order for us to truly love God and have a relationship with him, we have to choose that love. And it's honestly kind of simple because in order for us to love God, we have to have free will in order to choose that love. And that is ultimately why Jesus, uh, evil exists. Um, God desires for us to have a real relationship with him and to love him. And as such, he gives us free will so that we can truly have a relationship with him. Cause in order to have a relationship, you have to have free will to choose that relationship. And because we have the free will to choose God and to choose to love him. We also have the free will to choose not to love him and to choose to do
1: wrong. Yeah. uh, Billy Graham said, uh, but man rebelled against God. Man said, I don't need you, God. I can build my own world without you. And God said, if you take, that position, you will suffer and die. And man took that position and he began to suffer as he's been dying ever since. So, yeah. basically, uh, we made a stand against God, kind of, and now we're sitting and in suffering.
0: Yeah. I also wanted to point out that although God mm. allows us to have free will, and by extension does allow mm. evil to be in the world, God in no way creates evil or causes it. When God created the earth, he said in Genesis 1.31 mm. that everything was very good. That means that there was no sin, death, or evil. God did not create the world to be evil, but evil only occurred later when Adam and Eve defied mm-hmm. God by eating the forbidden fruit.
1: Yeah. Um, I on the suffering portion, not the evil portion because yeah, God doesn't cause evil, no. but the uh, suffering portion. I know some people have their struggles and everything, and sometimes you will go through hard times because God is trying to build you up for some reason for human development and like yeah. build you up to prepare you for an upcoming event or something like that. Yeah.
0: And a lot of people will find that it's only through suffering that they will turn to God and that people will leave God and they'll leave Christianity and they'll abandon it. And then it's only later when they go through hard times and things that they begin to realize how much they really need God. Yeah. I want to just briefly respond to the last part because they had an objection to the free will defense. They said, um, would it be wrong for them to stop someone from killing someone else because it would be hindering their free will. And so I just wanted to say that, uh, well, they also then try to compare themselves to God. And even a cursory look at this objection so shows how illogical and nonsensical it is. Uh, to begin with, comparing a finite being with an infinite God is beyond unreasonable. And even if this were a fair comparison, which it is not, the writer fails to realize how free will actually works. If you see someone else committing a murder and you stop them, you have not impeded their free will. Because you in no way controlled their decision to commit murder, only the environment they committed that deci- they made that decision in. When we speak of God giving us free will, we mean that God gives us the ability to make decisions. For God to suspend our free will, suspend our free will would be equivalent to him making us into mindless robots without the ability to make decisions. For God uh, – sorry, but God doesn't do that. He allows us to be capable of thought and decision-making. And so when you, if you stop someone from committing a murder, you haven't affected their free will. One, because you can't. Humans are finite and as such don't have the ability to suspend free will. And two, you haven't at all changed their decision to commit murder or their free will decision to commit murder. You've only simply prevented them from acting on the decision they made.
1: Yeah, I don't think I really studied over for that point because I think I just – I summed up the question and completely forgot about the second half. But <laughs> Yeah.
0: I mean ultimately <clears throat> that whole objection just comes from a misunderstanding of what free will is.
1: Yeah. Uh, You can go ahead with the third one. The next question is, why did Satan and his angels rebel against God, seeing how he is omnipotent? And, uh, we don't really know the reasoning why he wanted to rebel against God, even though he knew he was omnipotent, but we know that he wanted to uh, take in the glory in the worshipping, rather than give it out. Yeah. Uh, Satan or Lucifer, as he's first mentioned, uh, as his angel name, uh, he was a angel of music. And so, uh, he would uh, sing songs and worship to God, but he wanted to be worshipped for his music.
0: Yeah. So, um, answering this question... Like you said, we don't necessarily – the Bible doesn't exactly say this was why Satan rebelled or anywhere like that. Yeah. Um, I would say we should look at Isaiah 14, 12 through 14 is where we get a lot of – almost all of our information about Satan's fall it actually comes from Isaiah 14. It says, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the Mount of the congregation in the sides of the North. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I'll be like the most high. And so if you look at this passage, the answer, um, I would say the why be why he rebelled would most likely be one word, and that's pride. Um, In this passage, we see the phrase, I will, four times. He says, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the Mount of the congregation, and I will be like the most high. And all these state, what the, all these statements have in common? They all show a lot of pride. Um, he wanted to be God. He wanted to be just as good, as, just as powerful as God. He wanted to be worshipped like God, like you said. And pride is a very dangerous thing. The fact of the matter is that pride often blinds those who give into it from the truth. And Lucifer clearly was blinded by something because he, he literally attacked an all-powerful God, and he rebelled against God. And he was just so blinded by the pride that he had that he was willing to rebel against his own Creator.
1: Yeah. Uh the second half of the question, uh, why did God let Satan live, uh we don't know why uh he's let him live for so long, but we know that he ordained uh I forget uh John Piper that's where it is. John Piper said that God has ordained Satan, uh, to have a long leash with God holding on to it because he knows that when he when we walk in and out of those temptations uh struggling both with physical and moral effects that they bring more of god's glory will shine in that battle than if he took satan out yesterday and what's really interesting about that quote is do you know what
0: i had here for this part of the question i had the exact same quote written here (laughs) i just want to say that um so Based on the fact that Satan had the ability to rebel in the first place, I would say that God created him, because of, based on that information, that God created him with free will,
1: or at least... Yeah, I I assume angels have a free will, because...
0: Because how could he have rebelled if he didn't?
1: Yeah, well, he wasn't the only one, because he had others who followed him, but... Yeah,
0: so clearly angels do have free will, and based on what we have already established with the other question about the problem of evil, um, God gave him the free will, which means he gave him the free will to choose to love God, or to choose to rebel against God. And so why did God let him live? Like you said, that te- the quote from John Piper, I just wanted to say it in the end that God very easily could have destroyed Satan mm. on the spot if he wanted to. Yeah. I mean, ultimately God is all powerful. Satan is not. God is all knowing and all powerful. And so the Bible may not tell us why God let Satan live, but ultimately God knows everything. He knew what was going to happen. He knew what Satan was going to do. And there's nothing more to it. Yeah. And there was one more part of the objection that you didn't mention that is very easy to mention to answer he just said if there's no sin in heaven how did Satan fall from heaven that was the last part of the objection and this one's actually pretty easy because it kind of answers itself
1: yeah he uh, says if
0: there's no sin in heaven how does Satan fall from heaven well it's kind of easy Satan sinned and because there's no sin in heaven he was removed from heaven that's
1: yeah I had answered that I just didn't write it down on a question
0: yeah but uh, God gave him free will and he rebelled and so he was removed yeah he was just kicked out of heaven <laughs> it's the best I can do I mean it doesn't seem like we need much more of an answer
1: than that yeah uh next one is what created this one what i have like nothing for this question what created god
0: yeah i got like basically my answer was nothing
1: i got a uh quote from dr kent hobbend uh i've listened to a few of his uh debates or whatever that he's done and uh he had a muslim guy ask him where did god come from and this was his response (laughs) Where God come? Where does God come from? Assumes that you're thinking obvious, obviously displays that you're thinking of the wrong God, because God of the Bible is not affected by time, space, or matter. He is affected by uh, if he was affected by time, space, and matter, he is not God. Time and space, time, space, and matter—what we call a continuum—would have to come into existence at the same instance. Because if you had matter, no space, when would you put it? if you had, uh, space and, uh, if you had matter and time, where would you put it? Uh, they, they would all have to come into existence simultaneously. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, pretty much I had by definition, God is infinite
0: and uncreated, which doesn't really leave any, since he's uncreated, nothing created him.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's not a very hard question to answer. Well, he's, uh, Because to create something, uh, you're gonna... Because the person who created the computer isn't running around in the computer changing all the lights and everything. Uh, so to create the world and time and matter and space, God is outside of that. He's always existed. He will forever exist.
0: Yeah. Nothing created God.
1: It's... It's hard to comprehend because of our, uh, small-minded, I guess, brains, but...
0: Yeah, we are finite humans. Yeah. To have a little bit of a struggle understanding an infinite God.
1: Yeah.
0: In some aspects.
1: Okay. Uh, why is blasphemy the unforgivable sin, but something like pedophilia isn't? All right. So, you want me to go first with this one? Yeah. So, um, this
0: subjection is grounded in a severe misunderstanding of what <laughs> the unforgivable sin is. Um, the only thing I can say for certainty is that. I don't know for certain what the unpardonable sin is. There have been a lot of suggestions over the years, though. Um, to begin with, the unforgivable sin is found in Mark three twenty-eight 28-29, Matthew 12, 31-32, and Luke 2.10. The first of these passages, Mark 3, 28-29, says, Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewithsoever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. These verses are clear, however, blasphemy in general is not the unforgivable sin. Um, This is evident by verse 28. Matthew 12:31 through 32 makes it even clearer. It says, "Wherefore I say," yeah, it's basically the same story, or the same thing. It says, "Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man shall be forgiven him, but whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world nor in the world to come." These verses are even more clear that all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven. Blasphemy in the traditional sense is not the unpardonable sin. These verses make this very clear. Um, let's finally, Luke twelve ten. the other verse talks about the unpardonable sin. It says, Whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But unto him that blasphemeth against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven him. It pretty much says the same thing. it two verses, so we won't talk about it for too long. As for what the unpardonable sin is, I cannot say with certainty what it is, as like I said, countless speculations have been and conjectures have been made throughout the years. The Bible nowhere very like, explicitly says what the unpardonable sin you, is. What the,
1: you're the cutting out of
0: it. Is. Um, with that in mind, I figured I would briefly present. The first one is that the unforgivable sin is the very act of not receiving salvation, even after one is aware of it. The reality of Jesus Christ and death and resurrection. It is unpardonable because the sinner willfully never receives salvation and thus condemns himself. Another common interpretation is that this passage only applied to those living during Jesus' earthly ministry and that the unforgivable sin was attributing Jesus' miracles to Satan. The other interpretation I came across quite often was that the unforgivable sin is committed when one is convicted of salvation by the Holy Ghost and instead of coming to salvation, attributing the conviction to the work of Satan himself. Obviously, I'm not saying I agree with these different interpretations, but I figured I'd present some of the more common ones so you can get a sense of how a lot of people interpret this passage.
1: Yeah. Uh... I know you were talking so fast that you were starting to lag out there, but. Uh, no. Basically, how I turned it, uh, how I looked at it, is that the unforgivable sin is the denial of uh, that Jesus' works were of the devil, because that's kind of what the Pharisees were doing if you look uh, at the passages around it. And it's one thing to suppose that Jesus was out of his mind, but comparing to uh, the Spirit of God to the work of the devil that's a hardened heart and uh jesus does not necessarily declare that the scribes are already condemned but he warns them gravely about their precarious position where they have a high likelihood of not making it into heaven because of their hardened hearts and not accepting like even being open-minded to what jesus was saying
0: yeah it's sorry if i talked a bit fast there
1: yeah no, I, I didn't understand could... half of what you said because you were just starting to lag it out <laughs> Oh, well, hopefully. Yeah, I, hopefully I, that's not the, a big problem. For the verse I had, uh, I had Mark three twenty-eight to thirty. I'm not sure if you read that in there or not.
0: Uh, yeah, I think I did. All yeah, right. that was the first one. All
1: right, that's all I had for that question. So.
0: Yeah. So basically, all I had to say on the whole question was, <laughs> we don't know for sure what the unpardonable sin is. A lot of people made different speculations, like you said. I think I think I mentioned your one. You said right.
1: I the, 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 uh, saying that the spirit of god's works are of the devil
0: yeah because the only th- only three i the three i found the most were just those three that i mentioned um the one is just not getting saved um attributing the work of jesus jesus miracles to satan and then attributing the holy ghost's conviction to satan those are the three i came across the most
1: yeah
0: and like i said i don't agree with all obviously i don't agree with them well not all of them anyways but um i figured i would present them just so you can see how other people have interpreted this mm-hmm Number six, if God won't speak to us today because he wants us to have faith, why did he directly speak to large biblical figures like Moses, Abraham, Mary, and more, and yet can't do anything for us?
1: Uh, So what I did, uh, basically, uh, back in Bible times, if you look at it, they had no reason to believe in God because there was no proof of God's existence, really, other than his creation. And so God had to show himself to them to... Uh, for them to believe in Him. But today we have the Bible to lead us to Him in that way. As well as, uh, for God not speaking to us today, He does speak to us, just not in a vocal matter like we would naturally think. There are ways that uh, God speaks to us in the things we do and the things uh, we have done in the past. I know that uh, there's a person who... Would have been hit by a car if, uh, if he didn't have that thought to change the direction that he was going once, uh, I think it was last week or something like that. One of my friends was walking down the road about to cross an intersection, decided to turn the corner instead to take the long way. Car accident happened right in front of his eyes. And then uh, I know God, God has also spoken to me in my own life when I've asked him questions and uh, asked for a sign for an answer or whatever.
0: Yeah. I just wanted to say um, the author, the writer of this objection has got it wrong. He assumes that since he's never audibly heard God speak from the heavens, that God doesn't speak to anyone ever in any way. Um, I just wanted to say that this is far, far from the truth. God spe- speaks to us today through the Bible, and like you said, through different things. Um, God inspired the Bible and then preserved it for us to have all the way to this day. God has not abandoned us. He hasn't fallen silent. He still speaks every day through his word, whether you're reading it or hearing it read. The Bible is God speaking to us. It is true that God no longer speaks audibly to us, it seems, but instead he's given us the Bible so that wherever and whenever we can see what God has to say. So why did God speak to the large biblical figures in the Bible? Well, the biblical figures that God spoke to audibly, like you said, they didn't have access to the Bible like we do today. So God spoke to them through prophets and yes, audibly speaking to them.
1: Yeah. That's just how it was back then. I also had uh, Hebrews 11, 6 that says, uh, but without faith, it is impossible to please him for he that cometh. To God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Yeah.
0: On is that all you had for that one? Yeah, that's all I had for that one. On to number seven. Do animals have souls and can they go to heaven? Do plants have souls? Do single celled organisms have souls? What's even required for a soul? How do you know a soul exists? This is a big question. Yeah, it's a
1: it's a loaded question.
0: It's a very loaded question. It's a has a lot of parts.
1: It's a debatable question as well. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of debate over some of this stuff. Do you want to lead off? Sure. Um, so I,
0: I I cut the question up into a couple parts. The first yeah. one is, um, do animals, plants, and single-celled organisms have souls? I figured first you'd look at animals. The, never in any <laughs> verse does the Bible just, like, flat out say animals have souls. There are indica- several indications that they do, even if it's not in the same sense as humans. In Genesis one thirty, it says, and to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for me, and it was so. The word life in this passage is translated from the Hebrew word nefesh, and what's significant about this is the fact that the word nefesh literally means soul or spirit, and this would make it seem that animals, that humans, uh, sorry, this would make it seem that animals do have a soul in a sense. However, I would argue that humans alone were created in the image of god and so they would have so humans souls are very different from animal souls and so for an animal its soul seems to just be kind of like its animating factor the thing that makes it what it is and while humans have an eternal soul to serve a far greater purpose than just to be that animating factor um, next was the question of whether or not plants and single-celled organisms have souls this question is pretty easy leviticus 17:11 says for the life of the flesh is in the blood and for me at least the way i look at it this verse settles it animals can be said to have a form of a soul but there's organisms that do not have blood such as single-celled <clears> organisms and plants cannot so then the p so the question must be asked do animals go to heaven this question has been asked by sincere pet owners for centuries but sadly the bible is not necessarily clear as to whether or not our pets will go to heaven with us it seems that there will be some form of animals in heaven. As to whether or not those are animals that die here and go to heaven, or whether God creates new animals for heaven is unclear in Scripture.
1: Yeah, and That's what uh, I had for that
0: first part of the question. Uh,
1: Dr. Richard Garotti, I hope I'm saying that right, uh, he took uh, this is what he had to say about it, because uh, 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 I couldn't really find like anything to help me out, so I just decided to throw this yeah. in here. Yeah. Uh, Consequently, it differs from the souls of animals in two important respects. First, it is the seat of intelligence for reason. For this reason, a man is held responsible for his actions in a way that animals are not. And secondly, the soul is immortal. That is the uh, description of a soul, almost. Uh, But basically, what I understood from that is that animals might make it to heaven, but they might have different... uh, Guidelines to make it sense. They aren't as intelligent or as perfect as we are, because we are uh, God's perfect, cre- uh, not perfect creation, but uh, imi- created yeah. His image. While other animals are not, and whatnot. So, yeah, animals are not
0: creating God's image,
1: <clears throat> and so I would argue that they do
0: have a soul, but I would argue that it is very different than a human soul. Yeah. And as far as for what is a qu- required for a soul. I'm afraid I cannot exactly give a certain answer. The Bible doesn't say necessarily in any specific place.
1: Oh, the verse you said said, uh, said the the life of the blood
0: or whatever. Yeah, so the best I could find to an answer for this was the verse I already mentioned once, Leviticus 1711. Um, It says, for the life of the flesh (laughs) is in the blood. Um, With this in mind, I think the best I can do to answer the question as to whether what's required for a soul, as odd as it sounds, is that blood is the one requirement I was able to find for a soul. Um, And that would, like I said, immediately exclude plants and single-celled organisms. Now, as far as evidence for how do we know a soul exists, uh, this may sound like a generic answer, but it's the best I can do. The simple fact is that the Bible has a track record of accuracy that is 100% all of the time. So the Bible says that we have souls. I believe this is accurate. We could get into science, history, and anthropology to try to build a case for the existence of the soul, and the evidence is there, trust me, but the our podcast episode can only be so long, yeah. so, so we'll just leave it with that.
1: Next question is an even more loaded question. That's long. Yeah. Oh, uh, very.
0: Yeah.
1: How did the writers of the Bible know what to write, and how can we trust what they say? Yeah. So, uh, starters off, uh, most books of the Bible are eyewitness accounts. So, like, the book of Genesis, Exodus, and whatever. I know Exodus was written by Moses. I think Genesis was as well.
0: the Pentateuch was written by Moses.
1: Yeah, and, uh, then, like, Matthew was written by Matthew. The letters from John were, uh, written by John and whatnot. And then, uh, where is it, uh, basically they believe that they had seen something significant that they needed to write down or whatever. And then, uh, we as Christians believe that God guided them to write down exactly what he wanted them to, which is called inspiration. And then, uh, we believe that the Bible is God breathed. So basically the same thing where God like guided them to write down what he wanted them to. Yeah. And
0: yeah I had pretty much the same answer. <laughs> um, so I will say that first, um, so, um, like I, like you said, um, God didn't, God guided them in what to write. Um, so I just want to say there's not necessarily like a single answer for what, why they wrote what they wrote or whatever, but, um, I'd like to say for the most part, the biblical authors were guided by God and what to write. Like you said, I do not believe for the most part, he audibly told them what to write, like a voice from heaven. But simply guide them in the writing. In 2 Timothy 2.16, it says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And so that would be, like you said, the doctrine of inspiration, where God God guided the writers of the Bible in what to write. I'd also like to say there was, does seem to be some ex- instances in the Bible where God did audibly tell them what to write. Uh, in Revelation chapter one verse eleven, it says, God says, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last what thou seest write in the book. This is just one of the instances that I was able to find where we find God actually audibly telling John what to write. So I think you can see that mostly God just guided them what to say, but there were instances where God told them audibly what to say. And um, I'd also like to say the comment, like that original comment, the, un, what's the word, unsummarized version, says very specifically, how can we trust the gospel writers considering they're anonymous? And I did want to say that, um, just briefly, that as far as whether or not the gospel writer- writers can be trusted, because of their anonymity, the answer is quite simple. Whether or not they're anonymous, that does not affect their trustworthiness. Uh, anonymity of the authors does not affect the accuracy of the book in any way. As to whether or not they actually are even anonymous is up for debate, but even if they are, that doesn't affect their liability. And I do believe that the Bible can be trusted, and we, there's a lot of evidence there, but we don't necessarily have time to go over all of it today.
1: Yeah, uh... I, get, I just realized a lot of the stuff I wrote down under this category should have probably gone under a future question, so we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, so, was that all you had for that question? Yes. Okay. Uh, so the next question is, why is it fine for God to sin but not us? For instance, he for his example, he put jealousy, wrath, and lie. Isn't it hypocrisy? And you can't say he's perfect when he can't hold to his own standards. You want to lead us off? Sure. So I think this was
0: mainly written from a severe misunderstanding of
1: what the Bible actually says. Yeah.
0: Um, it, I also would like to say that God has absolutely unequivocally never lied. Titus 1-2 says, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. I want to highlight the words cannot lie. God is perfect and he is holy and as such, he literally cannot lie there are a lot of passages that skeptics will turn to to try and say that God lied, but for sake of length, I won't, we won't deal with those here. Maybe we can, or at least I won't, maybe we can deal with some, go over more of those in, like, a future episode. Yeah. Um.
1: I know, like, there was a Jeremiah passage or whatever where, uh, it was, it's written down that, uh, they're talking to God and, uh, it's like, why, why is that lied lie to me or whatever? When it was actually just false prophets talking yeah. to telling people things that God said this or whatever. Yeah. Whenever so somebody it says wasn't actually God speaking about it.
0: Yeah. Whenever somebody says something like that is in the Bible, mm-hmm. one of the first things you need to look at is who actually, like if it's a person talking, mm-hmm. like this person said, God lied in the Bible. The first thing you need to see is, was that person actually telling the truth? And mm-hmm. most times, like you pointed out, it was, it's not the truth. It was a false prophet.
1: Yeah. Most of the time where <laughs> they point out where it's a uh, where they think it's a lie, it's usually a misinterpretation. Or uh, misunderstanding in it. So. Yeah.
0: And so um, the other two things, he, instances he had were jealous and wrathful. The first one, um, the word jealous. So the Bible in countless places says things like, um, For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. This may seem pretty bad in relation to verses such as James three thirteen through 16, which clearly condemn jealousy as a wicked sin. So why is God exempt from this sin? It's honestly quite simple. When the Bible says that God is jealous, it is using it in a different way than what we would traditionally think. When we hear the word jealous, we think mainly of covetousness and like you know, desiring what someone else has. And while this is what the word means normally, its definition is a bit different used in context and used in reference to God. Um, so when the word jealous is used in context in this context, context in reference to God, it is actually not describing a sense of covetousness. Obviously, an Almighty God who created literally everything. Doesn't need something that someone else owns. Instead, it means that God is desirous of those things which belong to Him. In the example of Exodus, this is our worship and praise. An example of this type, this use of this word jealousy, would be um, if you see someone else pursuing your spouse, like your husband or your wife, you would actually be not you would it would not be a sin to be jealous of them. It would actually be good. This is how it is when God is jealous. It doesn't connotate sin, but actually demonstrates the depths of His love for us.
1: Yeah, I had that exact uh, <laughs> example for jealousy. Uh, I
0: think, yeah, that's generally the example that's used.
1: Yeah. And then I just had listed all the verses where it says God is jealous. Uh, Exodus 25, Exodus 20, thirty-four, fourteen, 14, Deuteronomy 4, 24, 5, 9, 6, 15, Joshua twenty-four, nineteen, and Nahum 1, 2. So. Yeah.
0: And as far as God being wrathful, honestly, this is probably the easiest to show the fault of. In and of itself, anger is not necessarily a sin. Angers is on, only – the sin is what you do in response to your anger when you give in to it and you lose your temper. That's that's the sin. Yeah. And so in the Bible when it says God is wrathful and he's angry, there's absolutely nothing sinful about it. God is just and right, righteous. And as such, whenever God is wrathful, it is only righteously.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, you basically just used all my points here. So,
0: Yeah. <clears throat> Num- number ten is the bible or quran 100 percent authentic and real or just the bible in this case if so why are so many of the stories unscientific and immoral if not why does it even exist in the first place if we can't differentiate which is real or which is not how do we even know which is supposed to be taken as allegorical and which is meant to be taken for real you want to lead us off
1: okay uh i'm gonna do you want to lead us off while i get this because i'm going to pull up that image i showed you a few months ago
0: okay yeah all right so the first part of this subject question Yes, the Bible is most certainly 100% authentic and real. In answer to the second part, the events recorded in the Bible are far from unscientific. You see, the events you're most likely referring to, I don't know for sure, but the comment, what they're most likely referring to are the miracles recorded in the Bible. But in reality, the miracles recorded in the Bible are not unscientific, but are completely what one would expect what would occur with the existence of an almighty God. As far as the immoral events go, you must understand the Bible records the events of countless people's lives, including the times when they sinned and act immorally. That includes, or sorry, what needs to be remembered here, though, is that although the Bible records immoral acts committed by sinful people, it always makes it clear that any immoral act committed was sinful and contrary to what God wants us to do. The Bible doesn't ever say that immoral acts are okay. It doesn't ever say they're good. It The only times it has them, which is in recording in pe- people's lives and stuff, it makes sure to say that they aren't wrong, and that it is a sin. As far as which is to be taken as allegory and which is to be taken literally, this one's honestly a little bit easy. Unless indicated by the text in some way, all of the Bible is to be taken literally. When a portion of the Bible is to be taken as allegory, the context makes it clear.
1: Uh, yeah, I think I'm just gonna have to pull up a Google tab because I have no idea what happened to the image. It was there, and now it's gone. I had it loaded up on a gallery, and it's not there, so. Okay, um. I love my computer. It's so great. Yeah, so, uh. Basically, I had, uh. Because he said, if so, why are there so many unscientific and immoral stories? Uh, science can't explain a lot of things, so science uh, science and religion really shouldn't be paired because they don't really, uh, they get along, but, uh, a lot of scientifical beliefs that, uh, don't, uh, get along with what some of the things like the Bible say. And then, yeah. uh, once I get this image up here.
0: I also want to say any place where sci- where supposed science and the Bible disagree, the Bible is right.
1: Yeah.
0: Like the question, I mean, honestly, the answer to the question is simply the Bible is 100% authentic and real. It is also 100% accurate all the time. And so if there is a scientist that says, you know, the Bible is inaccurate here, ultimately what's going to happen...
1: Oh no. That's not good. Am I back? yeah okay i thought i uh (laughs) thought i was gone there for a second all right so can you see the image right
0: it's loading give it a second i can see a whole bunch of images
1: okay so the image here on the right is the uh all the cross-references that are in the Bible. This is every single verse that references another verse in the Bible. So, and there's, I think, uh, for the exact number, there's 63,779 cross-references in the wild. Bible. And to uh, put this in, just for comparison's sake, uh, this was, okay, I don't have the guy who said this, but yeah. Uh, just for comparison's sake, with all due respect to any Muslim or Muslim background, if you think about the Quran and Islam, the Quran was written not by forty authors because this was written by forty authors over uh, fifteen hundred years in three different yeah. languages and three different continents. Uh, it was, uh, but it was written by one man. The Quran was Muhammad. And when you look, uh, basically, he's re- writing about what a single vision I think it was he had during a year. He was illiterate, so he uh, set he spoke the, uh, re- the visuals. The what, where's the word, What am I? What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, I don't know. The vision. That's what I'm looking for. He spoke the visions that he saw to someone who could write and read, and uh, there was so many different uh, contradictions with his writings that so- there was another man after he died who came, collected all his writings, and decided what was wrong and what was right from just his writings, and got rid of the others. That is how the Quran was written. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I didn't have anything really written about the Quran or Islam or any of that. I figured maybe we could deal with that in a future episode at some point. Yeah. Who knows? Probably. Probably be be a while for that one, probably, but maybe some point.
1: So that's uh, that. I think that that's question... all I had
0: for that. Right. Question 11. Why does God punish humans with an infinite punishment for a finite crime? You want
1: to lead us off on this one? Uh, Sure where's the thing that I want us to lead us off with? Why did I not put this at the top? Is it another picture? No. Okay. Okay, so, uh, there it is. Uh, as Anselm of Canterbury, he was, I wouldn't necessarily say he was a Christian, but he was, I think, a Catholic church leader, not a leader, but he was a monk for the Catholic church. He wrote in Cur, Dois, Homo... I probably just butchered that. Is that that. Latin? (laughs) You trying to read Latin now? Yeah, I I can't read Latin, but... uh, Essentially (laughs) states, guilt is not merely relative to the offense, but also to the status of the offended. For example, if you went up and you punched, say, some random dude on the street, you're probably going to go to jail for like a day or two. But if you went up and punched a cop on the street, you're probably going to go to jail for like a week, maybe two weeks, maybe up to a month because you just went up and punched a officer and now you're <laughs> impeding his job. But if you went up and punched the president, yeah. you're probably going to go to jail for a few <laughs> years. Cause it's, yeah. So basically, uh, it's, as it says, guilt is, well, it is not merely relative to the offense, but who you are who's the offended part party. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, um, what I had was I wanted to say, first of all, like, I think kind of like maybe you could have seen in Riley's example, the time it takes to commit a crime. First of all, is not at all related necessarily to the amount of time the punishment for said crime is carried out. The example I had was it takes what? Three seconds to pull the trigger on a gun, but you can get a life sentence for it. Yeah. If you shoot, takes three seconds to commit the crime, but you can get, you know, 50 years in jail for it. Only yeah. uh, the, the crime and the punishment, the time doesn't correlate.
1: An offense against an eternal being necess- necessitates, I can't ever say that word, a sentence worthy of the crime and the being, being yes. uh, since God is eternal, the punishment will be eternal as well. Yeah. And that is why if you sin and don't come back to God, because he offers forgiveness, if you don't uh, go to God, then you are condemned to hell. And we'll go on, uh, someone once said that uh, those condemned to hell will go on sinning for eternity. There is no repentance in hell. Sinners desire nothing to do with God. So,
0: I actually found that same quote. Uh, Further, I wanted to say a little bit, kind of like pretty much what you said, it needs to be clarified that God is not bound by time. He's not limited by it like we are. So for God, all of eternity is, as a, guy, a man named Al Sarado says, an endless eternal present. He then made this observation. As an eternal being, he perceives every moment of our past as an endless eternal present. Consequently, each of our pre- offenses against him is nonetheless eternally present to him. So for the unsaved, although the crime they commit may seem finite and small, in reality it is infinite. Because like you said, it was committed against an infinite being. And finally, for this, I wanted to say that I honestly don't necessarily even think this objection bears a lot of merit because God has no desire for us to go to hell. This yeah. is very clear all throughout the Bible. Second Peter three nine says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God does not want us to go to hell. He desires that we would all repent and come to faith in him, thereby avoiding hell altogether. God freely offers salvation to anyone who would accept it. This just shows that God isn't just like maliciously sending people to hell against their will. They're making the choice in and of themselves to reject God.
1: Yeah. Uh, for the, I've seen a lot of people who are like why, why would I uh, go believe in a God or follow a God that sends people to hell? He doesn't send people to hell. Yeah, he's not. He uh, is the only way other than hell because being born sinners we are already on our way to hell. And, yeah, uh, the only way to not go to hell is to accept God's gift and go to heaven. And hell wasn't yeah, ultimately, created, I, th- I think we covered this in a past one when he covered, uh, hell itself, we might have. where hell wasn't created for humans. It was created for Satan since he did sin against God. And yeah, I, I wanted to say that God Necessarily does not send us
0: to hell. We send ourselves to hell by sinning and refusing to accept the free gift of salvation that God offers us. Yeah. Because like that verse I mentioned, Second Peter three nine, God does not want us to go to hell. We make the choice and we decide we don't want to follow God and we don't want to accept that free gift of salvation.
1: Yeah. We'll probably recover salvation next year because I kind of want to brush some up point, yeah. on that and go deeper into it. Yeah, talk about a couple of that we've done this year that we need to go deeper into, but yeah, we'll get to that. Do a little bit of a more in-depth discussion. Yeah. Uh, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Well, and why couldn't God just forgive us?
0: So, I didn't honestly. So, um, this answer could actually be really long. The answer, this this objection, answering this one, I'll abbreviate the response for sake of length. I think the main point that needs to be hit is quite simple. We have all sinned. And therefore are guilty. God is just, and as such, he must punish punish sin in order to remain just. So, in order for us to be forgiven of our sin, someone had to take that guilt upon themselves. This is what Jesus did on the cross. Now, that's the short answer I had. There's obviously a lot more can be said on the subject, but that's all I had, and that should suffice for now.
1: Yeah. At least for uh, me. I my first point I had God judges fairly, and then judge judge example. I have no idea what the judge example was, but. So I love well, my own notes. It's amazing.
0: I might know where you're going with the judge example because I found this a couple times. If you had somebody who spent 10 years planning a murder, okay, and they murdered 100 people and they came into – an, into, they went to court or whatever and the judge was – you know, to be sentenced to death or whatever. And the judge said, you know, you murdered 100 people. You're a horrible person. You're a murderer. You kill all these people. I don't care. I'm just going to let you go. And there's no punishment. He's released back in the world and he goes and kills more people. Would you call that judge just – no, no, he would not be just because he's not punishing the sin that needs to be punished. And so that might be where you're going with that. I've yeah, seen that th- example th- a couple that was times. I think that was a version of the example I had. Yeah, there's I've heard a lot of different variations of that, but that's an example that people use a lot.
1: Yeah, and uh, the reason for having Jesus die for us is because uh, before Jesus, they would sacrifice lambs or whatever for their sins. But to die, to get rid of all sins for eternity, so that way we could make it and we could be worth, not really worthy, but we could make it into heaven. We needed someone who already had the keys to heaven uh, to let us in. For example, uh, I actually heard this example today, luckily. Uh, basically, if you walked up to, you're walking through a neighborhood of mansions. Uh, and you walked up to one and said, "I'm a good person. I'm gonna live here." And the person, the person who owned the house, would just be like, "You no, this is my house," and probably just slam the door in your face. You you can't just live in a uh, house just because you think you're a good person. And so, uh, being, heaven being God's home, you need someone who has the keys to give you the keys to get into the house. Uh, yeah. And so. Jesus is the one with the keys, and since he lived a sinless, perfect life, he could die for our sins, and now we can have a yeah. relationship with God, and the free gift is the key to Heaven. There's other examples I know I could use, but I will save them for yeah. a later time. when we go deeper into these?
0: Yeah. Yeah, the only other thing I wanted to say with that was, like you said, the only reason Jesus could die for our sins was because he was sinless. If Jesus had sinned a single time, if he had told one lie his entire life, that would make him a sinner, and then dying, he would have had to die for his own sins, and he would not be able to die for ours. Yeah. And so, ultimately, because he lived a sinless life, that was why he could die for our sins. Yeah. Uh,
1: That's all I have for that. Yeah, that is all we have for today. Um... So, uh, if you have any questions, or you don't, if you have, a, if you have any uh, questions about what we've said, just drop them down in the comments below. We'll try to get to them. And uh, as well as it being the holidays, I don't know when we'll do it in January. I'm not even sure if we'll even. I don't know. Yeah, it's going. As our schedules are going to be busy, I think yeah. we should be able to get one in in January but we'll wait and see yet until after the new year. And, uh, yeah. So that's all we have for today. Uh, you want to do the salvation's message, Sawyer? Because my brain I isn't working.
0: I can't. I'll give just a brief one. So we talked a lot about God <clears throat> and heaven and stuff today. And so I just wanted to say, um, if you are listening to this today and you are unsaved, God, ah, G- uh, sorry. Jesus died for our sins. Like we said, um, the Bible says for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so ultimately anyone who has sin, like you mentioned, if you sin because we're all born sinners, we all are going to go to hell one day. That's just the reality. Yeah. However, Jesus Christ died on the cross so that we don't have to. And because of Jesus Christ's death on the cross, God can offer us salvation through his son. All you have to do is receive it.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, that's, I can't remember the reference. It says, um, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, and so I mean, the choice is up to if you are unsaved, the choice is up to you, whether or not you will accept God's gift. But ultimately, if you don't, you're going to end up in hell one day when you die, because there's only two there's only two op- options: heaven or hell. Either you reject God and you'll have you end up in hell, or you accept the free gift that God has offered to all humanity, and you'll go to heaven one day.
1: Yeah. Uh. Other than that, uh, let's go to prayer, I guess. I'll leave it. Dear God, I pray that you would uh, use our podcast to hopefully answer some people's questions that they might have had. I pray that you would uh, have the people that you uh, know need to see it come see our video. Maybe have it pop up on some people's For You pages or whatever when they're just scrolling through looking for something to watch. I pray that you might uh, continue to use us to spread your word. And I thank you for the opportunity that you have given us to do this. And I pray for those uh, people who have been watching us for the past few months. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Happy holidays, and we will see you guys next year. See you then.